This is an ABC podcast. Benjamin? Talia? Is anyone here? Am I alone? Is it something I said? Stop everything! Culture moves fast, so it's time to stop everything with me, just me, Beverly Wang. I'm free-ranging it this week. I'm going solo. You know, I just needed some me time to myself. But all is well. I will be partnered up again next week. But this week, right now, I do have such jewels to offer you. You won't even notice that I'm on my own. This episode is like a precious necklace made from valerian steel. Or maybe something more contemporary, like the medallion Kendall Roy wore to his 40th birthday party in the third season of Succession. Whichever you like, because both are on the table. I'm so excited for the big chats coming your way about two of the biggest shows on television right now. Succession and the new Game of Thrones spin-off, House of the Dragon, both from HBO. You can watch them on Foxtel in Australia or stream them on Binge. Starting with Succession, 76-year-old Brian Cox plays Logan Roy, the founder of the conglomerate Waystar Royco and patriarch of the dysfunctional Roy family. Logan Roy is hard, he's ruthless, and so fantastically profane. And for that indelible portrayal, Brian Cox could pick up an Emmy next month for Outstanding Lead in a Drama Series. It's Cox's second nomination for playing Logan Roy. He did win an Emmy back in 2001 for the miniseries Nuremberg. Brian Cox landed his first TV role in the 1960s and made his feature film debut in 1971, playing Leon Trotsky in Nicholas and Alexandra. But it wasn't really until Succession that he became a household name via Logan Roy. And really and truly, that unforgettable opening of the first episode of the first season set the stage for everything that was to follow. Here's a refresher with a language warning. Yes, that is Logan Roy in the middle of the night, weeing on the carpet, probably very, very expensive carpet, foul, profane, a bit shocking, and also at the same time kind of vulnerable and pathetic. That carpet wee was a sign of things to come. It was the opening salvo for Succession, which is now in production for its fourth season, following the dramatic events of season three. There's blood in the water. Sharks are coming. We're going to lose the company. Investigation's looking pretty bad. I'm focused on not going to jail. Logan says we have to take these. Cyanide pills. It's a mint. You do for... No one's on my side in this. I need you to protect me, Pinky. We'll beef up soon. I think we end up someone's lunch. When will your father die? Uh, with due respect. No, no, no. Obviously, yeah, no. Obviously, hugely 
looking forward to my father dying. Right. Where does this end? This friction. I thought my family was f***ed up. This is next level. Roman is a knucklehead. Shiv is a fake. And Kenny is screwy. I've seen more than any of them. Brian Cox is coming to Australia in September. He has events at the Antidote Festival in Sydney and the Melbourne Writers Festival, and I caught up with him recently. Brian Cox, welcome to Stop Everything. Good morning. Let's start with your acting first. You have had a decades-long career, and you've played characters like Hannibal Lecter. You've played the terrible CIA double-crosser Ward Abbott in the Bourne films. You know, these are not nice men. Uh, You've also embodied Logan Roy for three seasons now, with a fourth in the works. What do you enjoy about playing these unsympathetic characters? The challenge is always to find the empathy for them. You know, I mean, they're not sympathetic, but they can be empathetic. And somebody like Logan is a man who's made certain decisions. You know, I think he was probably quite idealistic when he was younger, but he sort of lost his way. And so he's become rather disappointed, particularly in the human experiment. And therefore, he's a little bit of a misanthrope. In fact, he's a complete misanthrope. But I think that, you know, these are decisions that come out of a life. And that's what fascinates me as an actor. You know, I used to play a lot of bad guys and I'd go, why do I play so many bad guys? I'm a bit fed up with playing bad guys. And then I realized, well, the trouble is that the devil has the best tunes, you know, as they always say. And the bad guys are really interesting. And I don't see, everybody sees Logan as a monster. I don't at all. I don't see him in that way whatsoever. I disagree with most of what the audience see because they don't really see beyond who he is. They just see his effects. And of course, he's quick to go to certain things. He's quick to make certain statements about stuff and usually very dismissive. And of course, his language, you know, he's pretty nasty with his language. His language is pretty uh, unforgivable. It's colorful. It's memorable. Colorful to say the least, yeah. You know, listening to you say that, that makes perfect sense to me because I imagine that in order to play someone like Logan Roy so convincingly, you do have to find a way to connect with him. Where do you locate the humanity of a character like Logan Roy? Well, the humanity in Logan, it springs from one thing. You know, when you think about it, all Logan wants to do is find a successor for his film. And he wants to find it within his family. And the family continue to fail on a regular basis. But he's not giving up on them. And he does miss his family and he loves his family. But it's his one vulnerable point are his kids. Dad, please. Please? Please. That's a deal. What have you got in your hand? What have I got? I don't know. Love? Love? You come for me with love. You bust them here, guns in hand, and now you find they've turned of sausages. You talk about love? You should have trusted me. Dad, why? Why? Because it works. I win. He has great difficulty the communication skills that he has are minimal with those children because of how he's been in the past the kind of father he's been the fact he's been absent so much of the time and i understand that because i've spent all my time being absent from my kids because of my career so i understand the problems that one has in you know, maintaining a career and a family at the same time, especially a high-powered career, you know, which I've had a sense of. So I empathize with that in Logan. 
and the fact that he isn't looking outside of it. He's looking to his own family, and it's consistently disappointing. You know, It's not his fault that his children are so deeply disappointing. You know, we tend to blame our parents for so much. You know, it's very easy to blame the parents and say, oh, well, it's bad parenting. You know, but the problem is there comes a time when all bets are off. A 25-year-old shouldn't be complaining about his childhood. You know, he should be moving on or she should be moving on. And they don't. And the problem for them is they've been so spoiled. You know, they have this sense of entitlement, which Logan certainly doesn't have. He's earned everything he's done. So he doesn't feel that sense of entitlement that they feel. And the fact that they're not skilled enough to do, I mean, Shiv, for example, you know, she was doing one job and then she's come along and he's very encouraging of her, but she can't keep a big mouth shut. She's incapable of actually maintaining what is necessary in terms to run a business, which is a sort of secrecy. But yet, I mean, you describe them that way, but they are actually a product of the world that Logan has built for them. That's the conundrum that he's he's not built the world. The world is that he, he's created this world and he's moved further and further to the right because he's so disappointed with both sides of the political spectrum, not just the one side. So in a sense, he's become very right wing in his orientation, but he kind of uses it really towards his own ends. He's a very much a man of his own mind and own distinction, and he can't stand people who are pretentious. His favorite Shakespearean quotes, give me the fucking money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we know that the Roy family is inspired in part by the Murdoch family. Has your involvement in succession affected your view of people like the real life Murdoch family, the Redstones, people who operate in that world of big money, power and influence? Do you have any sympathy for them at all? Not very much. I mean, I can understand somebody creating a business and a vision of a business and how that business he wants to manifest it. My problem, and it's funny enough because I'm actually doing a documentary series at the same time about money, because the corollary of Logan Roy is me. You know, I'm the opposite from him. I'm a socialist. I don't believe in any of the things that he believes in. But what I do believe is that he is spoiled by money. You know, there are people who have too much money and there are people who do not have any money at all. And the wealth gap throughout the world is just getting wider and wider and wider. And I see it as a really not a good thing, especially the level of poverty, which I've witnessed over the last few weeks in my pursuit of this documentary I'm doing. So it's the absolute opposite of what this show is about. And this show is also partly satirical. It's partly comic in its outline and its out view. And it's also very observational about how people do behave. And we witness it all the time. We've seen the most horrible president ever in the US, Trump. And we've witnessed that. And we've witnessed how so much has become debased over the last few years because of people with money who call the shots. Now, Logan is not averse to doing that as well, because he's he's quite ruthless. So he sees that as part of his tools. And his children, and they're the ones who are the victims, because they have never known any other life. They wouldn't know what it's like to suffer deprivation on the level of deprivation I've been seeing in food kitchens and what have you over the last few weeks. But at the same time, as an actor, there is so much of which is universally classical in Logan. You know, he has the sort of Leah qualities in him as well. You know, there's a whole other dimension. 
Not that that's always played all the time, because the writers are not really interested in that dimension. They're only interested in telling their story, and the story which is a critique of a certain class. And that's very strongly in the drive of the show. My thing is to humanize it. My thing is not to sort of make it a sort of uh, critique. I mean, I, my job is to fill the character out and give him life, rather than follow into kind of the politics of the writing view, you know. Speaking of the characters, and you mentioned the humor, I think that is an aspect of the show that is really, really excellent. The fact that there's brutality, but there's so much humor in succession. And it strikes me that as an actor, that would be quite a delightful acting job to be given the space. I'm just wondering whether you and the cast, all the characters who revolve around the Roy family, is that enjoyable? It's very enjoyable. We have a great time because they're great scripts. You know, and they follow a particular line, which is really the writer's intention. We are very much servants of the writers in that mm -hmm. way. And we serve it as best we can. But we also give it our own spin, which is our own sense of humanity and our own sense of who these people are and their dimension. And it's when you're playing somebody like Logan Roy, he has tremendous dimension. And you have to take that dimension into account. He's a very, very powerful man. And he's become a very powerful man through practice and through ruthlessness throughout his life. He's not a caring individual. So a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of season three. We know that the show has been renewed for a fourth season. What would you like to see happen to Logan Roy and his children in season four? Well, I'd like to see them to come to some rapprochement in some kind of way of them understanding that there's the whole Swedish deal, the Matson deal, is an important deal. And he sees it as a means of saving his company because his company, they've tried everything else and they've failed, particularly the children have failed. They've failed to come up with any alternative. You know, they just haven't. They don't have a vision for the company. And Logan has a vision for the company. And it's that vision which he's trying to maintain. Even and he's now coming around to the thinking that perhaps it's not to do with his children. Perhaps it's to do with the Swede. You know, so he's very keen on the Matson relationship. Because Matson talks a lot of sense, even though he has certain problems with Matson. Brian Cox, in your autobiography, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, you write about walking into a theatre in Dundee, Scotland, at the very young age of 14, and asking for a job in the theatre. What gave you the nerve to do that? Well, the nerve came from the fact that there was a job available that was, I had two teachers. I had a guy called George Hackett who actually lived in, he's just passed away last year. He was in his nineties and he ended up living in Australia. And a guy called Bill Dewar who died many, many years ago. And Bill and George, they saw that I was a fish out of water at school. I mean, everything was wrong. Nothing was right because it was a technical school and I was hopeless. I had no technical abilities whatsoever. I mean, I regret the fact that I don't have any, you know, I mean, one of the first things you do in carpentry is you make, create a boat. Now, there's nothing more simple than creating a boat, but not from yours truly. I mean, my boats were very unboat-like and instantly sinkable. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a disastrous kind of secondary education. I was, I was in the wrong school, but I had these guys who could see who I was. So one of them, Bill Dewar, had a, a student who'd been at my school before, a couple of, some years before, and he had a job at Dundee Rep. He was going on to drama school. So Bill Dewar got the tip off that this job was available. And I was recommended to go and see the artistic director of the theater called John Henderson. And I got the job. It was as simple as that. 
I mean, it was prepared for me. You know, there was through certain contacts. It was the contacts that made it possible for me to get the job. And you've been acting for decades. This book, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, is very much about you and your family. What do you want people to know about the life of Brian Cox? I mean, I just tell the story as it is. I think I've been incredibly lucky and I'm incredibly blessed. And I've, fortune has smiled on me right from the word go. And it's been a bumpy ride, you know, two marriages later, what have you, you know, domestically it's been tricky. But at the same time, career-wise, everything's sort of fallen to place at the right moment, you know. You know, I did well in the theater for many, many years. And then I decided to make the move to L.A. actually in the 90s because I really wanted to do more film because movies was the thing that motivated me when I was a kid. It was the thing I loved most about drama. I mean, I didn't go to the theater until literally six months before I worked there. I'd never been to a, a theater. And of course, it was a game changer for me because our tradition back in the U.K. is very much about the theater, you know. Even though I was a movie guy, I got into the theater and I, I had a voice and I had some great roles. I started incredibly well. I started up in Edinburgh at the Lyceum and then I went to Birmingham Rep and I had an amazing time. I played Iago, Mercutio, Pia Gint, Bolingbroke, Orlando. I mean, I had the most extraordinary time. By the age of 22, I'd played all these major classical roles, which is unheard of nowadays because that, we had a system, a very good repertory system, which existed in the UK. It's still there, but not as powerful as it was. I'm curious, who or what are you enjoying watching on screen at the moment? I've been watching, actually, the BBC have released something that they made in the early 70s, which was a Jean-Paul Sartre adaptation called Roads to Freedom. And it's way ahead of its time to see that again. You know, I've been looking at a lot of old stuff, stuff that was from the past. On YouTube's very good on that. It's interesting to see the writing from the past and how good it is and how considerable it is. I mean, this adaptation by David Turner of Roads to Freedom was pretty amazing, you know, considering it was made in 1973. You know, it's a long time, nearly 50 years ago. I enjoy watching And then I'm a huge fan of Jeff Bridges' work, so I've been watching The Old Man. What else did I watch? I watched The Boys, which is a little brutal for me, but I, I, I watched that and quite enjoyed it. Oh, and I watched Queen's Gambit, the female chess player, with that very, very good young actress. And then there's this thing called Inventing Anna, which another very good young actress called Julia Garner, which I've been enjoying too. So that's what you like to watch. But I understand, and I've read in your book that you have a deep love of cinema. You write very lovingly about American screen classics like... I watch TCM. That's what I watch all the time. Turner Classic Movies. And I actually I had an evening where I was presenting three films, which was a thrill. That sounds really fun. But I understand, Brian Cox, you don't like watching yourself on screen. How can that be? Very easily. I don't like it. <laughs> I always think of myself as being sort of like the elephant man. You know, I, I can't get used to my own image. I've never been able to do that. I mean, photographs are all right, but when I see myself on screen, I go, wow, what's going on? You know, I've always had that. I mean, I, my wife makes me watch things that I'm in and I watch them. And, uh, but it's very hard. My view is it's bad enough doing it without having to watch it. <laughs> It's the doing that you enjoy, not the watching that you enjoy. I like the doing. I don't, I'm not interested in, you know, you, you get these young actors with, with the video assist. They don't do it so much now. and must say that it's stopped, but you get these young actors rushing over to look at the video and how it all went. And you go, 
you know, just leave it alone. Let it be. You know, don't disturb the ether too much. You know, you've you've done your work and it's good, and just trust it. Instead of trying to look for some kind of aggrandizement of oh yes, I, it it makes you too self conscious. You know, right. So just leave it there. Don't think about it too much. You also write that early on you decided to forge a career in supporting roles. Why is that? Well, I mean, what actually happened was it wasn't early on. It was quite late on, actually. It was in the nineties. You know, I'd had this huge career in the UK. I'd done everything, and and the UK, the nineties was a bad time for television. In the UK, it's sorted itself now as old television has, and television's wonderful. I love television because of the long form. The long form is the best form dramatically because there's no act three structure. It's just act one, endless act two, and then finally. It finishes. <laughs> and Act Three is very brief, so I love that structure in television. But I always had this thing about wanting to do movies. So in the late nineties, having done, I was doing theatre as well, and I had done a couple of very big television things, which were good. And I realized, I thought, I just want to do movies now. So I decided, in order to be in movies, I wasn't going to go down the road of trying to be a star, a movie star, you know, because I just felt that that. Has so many problems, especially with the opening weekend hanging on your shoulders. And I've watched actors who've been defeated by that opening weekend because their film didn't do as well as they thought, and therefore their careers were affected by it. You know, it put a damper on some careers. And I just thought, I don't want to get in that role. I'm happy to do supporting roles. I mean, it's Michael Powell did this thing, which kind of released me in a way, where he said in movies there are no big parts and small parts. They're only long parts and short parts. I.e., you're on a movie for a long time, or you're on a movie for a short time, but it's always intense because when you're on, when it's your day, the day player, that's your day for doing the show. So I, I, I've always felt that movies in that way were, 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 it was fine to do it. And also, I was a grown up by then. I didn't have the same kind of vanities about being a certain kind of actor. I just wanted to do the work, and it's paid off because in the end. You know, I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, and I and I think that's all part of it. You know, I, if I hadn't been doing what I've done, I don't think I'd end up playing Logan Roy. You know. And Logan Roy, a fellow Scotsman from Dundee, Scotland, your hometown. Yeah, it was added in afterwards. That was, and that was. I mean, you see, that's a ridiculous thing. This is where writers are so unreliable. <laughs> when I first talked to Adam McKay and Jen, Jesse Armstrong, I said, you know, this character could be Scots. Could be Scots. Oh no, 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 no. It's got to be American. It's got to be American. So I thought, oh, right, he's got to be American. So and I played more Americans. I obviously played more Americans than anything. So I thought, okay, well, it's American. So then, you know, I started it. And there was a whole speech about being born in Quebec, Canada. So I thought, well, that's almost America, not quite, but okay. And I was playing American. So I just went on like that for nine episodes, <laughs> very happily. And then finally on the ninth episode, Peter Friedman came up to me and said, you know, they've changed your birthplace. I said, what? He said, yeah, you're no longer. I mean, and they didn't even tell me, which I thought was a bit rude. So do you then feel free to let a bit of the Scots slip out then when you're playing Logan Roy? Yeah, I did. I let a little bit of the Scots come in. But then he left Scotland when he was very young. He never really let what well, the backstory is that we believe that he left Scotland when he was a, you know, there was a form of kinder transport and he would have been part of that in 1939. He was probably born in 38. He's, he's, he's sort of 10 years older than me, 37, round about then. Mm. He'd been born. And uh, anyway, what happened was that, uh, as I say, he was 10 years older than me. So I felt that he was um, 
perhaps he'd gone on, well, he had gone on kinder transport to Canada and lived in Canada for quite a while. Then he'd gone back to Scotland to work in the newspapers because my hometown has DC Thompson's and it's a big newspaper, the Sunday Post, which is one of the biggest circulations in the world, you know, because there are Scots all over the place and they love that paper. The Courier, which is the local paper in Dundee. So I, I figured these backstory was that he'd, He'd worked there, even though he'd gone to Canada. He probably spoke with a Canadian accent. He came back. So there was a bit of a hybrid there going on. And then he moved to America when he was, again, a little older. He, he became very successful, you know, because he's self-made. That's the other thing about Logan. He has resulted in your longest running role. I understand he was meant to be just one season. And and so I'm curious as we end this conversation, I want to put the question on you that you leave dangling at the end of your book. After Logan Roy, then what, Brian Cox? Then I should go back to whatever. I mean, I'll go on. I'm going to go back to the theatre next year. I'm going to do a play about Bach, which I'm going to do at the end of next year. I'm hoping to direct my first film. I've got a wonderful script that I'm trying to do, but I'm trying to cast my leading man, and that's very hard. I'm, a, I'm also in the film. It's about two brothers, and I play the elder brother, which is a smaller role, but the younger brother I'm trying to cast at the moment. Uh, it's a good script, so I'm trying to get that made in the new year, so I'm hopefully going to be focused on that in the new year and then do theatre, and then there's a couple of theatre things I want to do. Well, Brian Cox, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. We are looking forward to your visit to Australia next month. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love Australia. I did a wonderful, I had a great time. I did a thing called The Straits, which I did in up in Cairns, and I loved it. I absolutely loved being up there. It was wonderful. Brian, thank you so much. You're welcome. Brian Cox will appear in person at the Sydney Opera House's Antidote Festival on Sunday, the 11th of September, and at the Melbourne Writers' Festival on the 9th and 10th of September. It is a massive week in television because HBO's House of the Dragon, one of the most highly anticipated TV spin-off series in recent times, is out. House of the Dragon is a prequel to Game of Thrones, which ran from 2011 to 2019. It almost feels redundant to sum up the existence and significance of Game of Thrones, which is based on George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire fantasy series. But here we go anyway. Set in Westeros, it's a story of powerful ruling families, great houses, battling it out to ascend the Iron Throne. There was a fair bit of incest, many battles, gore, palace intrigue, betrayal, and some dragons. During its eight seasons, Game of Thrones won 59 Emmys and felt like a near-constant conversation in pop culture. It spawned so many memes, quotes, and catchphrases. Winter is coming, anyone? And let's not forget the series finale, much hyped, but a source of controversy and dismay for so many fans. We even did a special podcast crossover episode with our friends on the screen show for the finale. Now, since Game of Thrones ended in 2019, fans have been waiting for multiple spin-off series to manifest. House of the Dragon is based on Martin's book, Fire and Blood, and it's the first of the HBO spin-offs to be released to an audience. In this series, we're going back about 200 years before Game of Thrones, and it focuses on the power struggle within the House of Targaryen that leads to civil war. I have decided to name a new heir. I'm your heir. 
is a foot. Do you think the realm will ever accept me as their queen? A woman would not inherit the Iron Throne. Because that is the order of things. When I'm queen, I will create a new order. Your family has dragons. They are power men should never have trifled with. You can hear all of the elements there, setting it up for an epic drama. There's a battle for succession, an aspirational woman queen, and lots of dragons, big ones. It's 10 episodes with weekly episodes dropping on Monday mornings on Binge. It's also available on Foxtail. There's so much to digest in even this very first episode of House of the Dragon. So we have Wenli Ma, film and TV critic for news.com.au and Jenna Guillaume, author, pop culture reporter and devoted Game of Thrones fan on deck to talk it all through. Consider this your spoiler alert also. Wenli, Jenna, great to talk to both of you again. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi. So let's do it like it's one of the small council meetings, right? Where the king and the hand of the king. Let's start first by taking our spherical stone from the center of the table and fitting it into the marble plate in front of you so you're checked in, okay? Everybody got that done? Good? Done. Okay, so now the floor is open. Let's talk about House of the Dragon. But I think in order to talk about House of the Dragon, we need to step back and go back to Game of Thrones and the finale of Game of Thrones, because it's kind of infamous for how it disappointed many fans. So before we get into House of the Dragon, I'd love to take your temperature about where the finale left you and how do you think that has influenced your expectations going into House of the Dragon? Wenli, do you want to kick us off? I wasn't that disappointed with it at the time because I think there was a huge part of me that was just relieved it was over after you know nine years of the show I was pretty exhausted because I think as we all know and as this chat will demonstrate Game of Thrones was never just about the show itself you never just watch the show watch the end credits and that was it it was such a huge cultural phenomena and the things around it was almost bigger than the series itself which meant it was exhausting and so by the end of it I was exhausted and then after probably a couple of years of sort of ruminating on it I kind of came along to the position where I was like yeah that was a crappy ending and so along with the exhaustion of the whole series and then the crappy ending of the series it just left me in a position where you know I heard about this new show coming and I was both oh god it is both too soon and too late so I needed to be won over by the new series. Okay. How about you, Jenna? Look, I was deeply heartbroken by the end of Game of Thrones. I was overly invested in the show. I would say it was my main fandom for many years. And so I spent a lot of time and energy and emotions over that show and over those characters. And I just loved the world so much and was very invested in the outcome. I just remember feeling absolutely sick watching the finale. I was just like, what am I watching? The whole last season wasn't great, except for maybe the second episode. But by the time the finale came around, I was just devastated. And I know it sounds silly, but I actually feel like I did mourn after it finished because it had been this wonderful thing that I loved. And I was just like, wow, for it to end up there was so disappointing. And so coming into House of the Dragon, I was reluctantly excited it's almost like you know getting back together with a toxic ex like it it was not good for me but I can't resist so that's how I felt going into the show (laughs) all right so House of the Dragon Game of Thrones 
our toxic ex uh, that we're, we're reluctantly reconciling with. They're just there. We can't help it, you know. I think that's really great to set the scene because I think what you've both said encapsulates what many, many fans have felt about the ending of that show. And Game of Thrones, Wenley, you also mentioned this. It felt like during the time that show was on, it was the overarching conversation about television and pop culture for a very long period of time. It took up so much space. And now along comes House of the Dragon. We also know that in the run-up to the release of House of the Dragon, there's been like so many spin-offs in the works and even like very costly pilots made and shelved. It's been a saga even getting to this point. Jenna, you are not just a fan of the TV show, but you also have read the books. Can you talk a little bit about Fire and Blood, which is the source material for House of the Dragon and specifically what aspects the show focuses on? So basically Fire and Blood, which House of the Dragon is based on, is George R. R. Martin's backstory of Game of Thrones or part of the backstory anyway. He basically, obviously Game of Thrones is the main series that he started with, or rather the book series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. But building this world and building this fantasy world, he constructed a lot of elaborate history and backstory to go with it. And he started writing it down and he wrote down so much that it actually became multiple books. <laughs> but this one in particular is Fire and Blood, which is the history of House Targaryen. So we had Daenerys Targaryen was the main Targaryen we saw in the show. And she was kind of like one of the last ones, her and Jon Snow. Fire and Blood actually starts like 300 years before Game of Thrones and goes right up to nearly till the current times when we see Game of Thrones. But um, House of the Dragon is just taking a smaller part of that. I think it's about 60,000 words of a like several hundred thousand word book. Um, so it's, it's a book length in itself, but within this very large book. And it's about the Dance of the Dragons, which is a civil war in Targaryen family history. And the, the Targaryens are the super blonde family, you know, to maintain that level of blondness, you assume a bit of intermarrying might have to take place. And there's lots of dragons in this one, a lot of scheming and stabbing. Thank you for that setup. Really appreciate it. Wenley, I've heard you describe House of the Dragon as Game of Thrones meets Succession. Yeah, it, it, it's exactly that. Because everything that I love about Succession in terms of Logan Roy and all of the machinations by all of his kids and potential successors and heirs to the Roy family empire, to me, feels very much like Game of Thrones, but now there are dragons involved instead. But it's got the same sort of like toxic people and personalities and all the jockeying for position and power and people sitting around boardroom tables, essentially, but more elaborate in the world of House of the Dragon and just kind of slowly, coyly suggesting things and putting other people down so they can advance their own position. It's just got more costumes and more blonde wigs. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna, do you think it's necessary to watch Game of Thrones in order to get into House of the Dragon? I don't think you have to because I think it is a prequel. I do think it probably helps to be familiar with the world and the law. But, I mean, all you basically need to know is it's a medieval-type kingdom and there's dragons. What do you think, Wenli? 
I think that's about right. I think, yeah, if you are a fan of the original series, there is a lot of lore. It is going to be a deeper, richer experience because there are lots of little Easter eggs and stuff and they say lines and you go, ooh, that is foreshadowing something that happens 200 years later. But the great thing about prequels, and this is why they're increasingly popular with distributors, with studios, is that you can bring in the original fan base, but you can also bring in all these new people who may very well have gone at some point in maybe 2016 and went, you know what, that Game of Thrones thing, it's just too late, I can't get into it now, it's too much, but they can get into House of the Dragon without having seen the original series and, of course, what all the streamers want is for you to get into House of the Dragon and then go back and watch Game of Thrones. It's a chance for redemption and to get in on the ground floor at another series level and work your way through. Jenna, you've actually written a piece for BuzzFeed about some of these Easter eggs about the first episode of House of the Dragon that Game of Thrones fans will recognize. Can you talk a little bit about some of that highlights and and that experience, like the pleasure of that kind of recognition? Definitely for me as a big Game of Thrones fan, it was one of the most enjoyable aspects was just being back in that world, but also seeing it at a very different time. You know, when we see Game of Thrones, the kingdom is already splintered and it's very much like a turbulent time at the start, whereas House of the Dragon is beginning in a time of peace. And so we're seeing, especially the Targaryens, there's only a couple of them left by the time we get to Game of Thrones. They're this flourishing family that is rich and, you know, there's so many dragons flying around and everything. So seeing that, seeing the familiar locations, but in a totally different context, it's Westeros, but not quite as we know it. And that's really exciting. Wenli, I went to a screening the other night in an actual cinema for a special event for this first episode. And someone from Binge was there and they said each episode of House of the Dragon and cost $30 million to make. Where do you see that big budget coming through on screen in comparison to, say, maybe earlier Game of Thrones episodes where it hadn't become such a huge hit yet? I think you definitely see that money on the screens. I mean, A, there are 17 dragons in this new series. I think you meet nine of them in this first season. So that we didn't see from the first few seasons of the original Game of Thrones and dragons and visual effects kind of creatures are really expensive to do. So a lot of budget, I'm sure, went to visual effects, but also you just see the scale of the production. I think you get a few more different kind of sets than you did at the beginning of the first original series. It's just such a richly textured world in what you see on screen. And I'm also guessing they're having to pay at least people like Matt Smith a decent amount of money to do the show because he is pretty famous as both Doctor Who and as Prince Philip from The Crown. So those acting budgets are probably much more expensive than we'll see on, for example, the upcoming Lord of the Rings series, which, you know, have a huge cast but not a lot of massive names and that budget's even bigger. So I imagine the effects on that will be even greater. But I think it just, you know, a show like House of the Dragon really has to demonstrate that it has scale, that it has ambition, that it's an event show, and you got to spend the money to show that. How do you both go with blood and gore on screen? I'm really bad. So I watch everything through my hands, or I look away, or sometimes I even hide. How do you go with blood and gore, Jenna? I don't love it. Um, I used to be much better at it. I feel like I'm getting more of a chicken as I get older. There was A lot of scenes in the first episode of House of the Dragon that I also had to watch through my eyes, in particular the birth scene. Oh, yes. Was horrifying. What about you, Wenley? Where do you stand on blood and gore? I'm pretty good with 
kind of stomaching blood and gore just because I watch a lot of blood and gore for my job. So I watched every frame of that first episode and I was very acutely aware of my colleagues sitting next to me at a screening as well in a cinema in Sydney, looking at my face as I was looking at the screen during that birth scene. But I do think possibly after the last couple of years, I have just a little less patience for gratuitous blood and gore and I'm not sure it's always justified, including in House of the Dragon. I know the argument is that this is how it was in medieval times, but I think we're also at a point now where we know this is how it was in medieval times. I think you can show that it was brutal and horrible and viscerally violent without some of those lingering camera frames. I think you can show, for example, you know, Emma Targaryen's face and the top of her body without the full wide frame shot of all the blood. Right. So what we are talking about, in case anybody's wondering, is in episode one, probably, I have to say, the bloodiest and most horrific, most traumatic birth scene I think I've ever seen on TV and film. I have been through an emergency cesarean birth myself. So I think that in part of it, I was watching, I was like, well, if I lived in this imaginary time, that's me dead for sure. That's really hard to watch. And I think a lot of people who have given birth in that fashion may also feel that way. I do want to talk about the graphic violence and also some of like the sexual stuff and the conversations around sexual violence. But in terms of that scene in particular, I think Wenley, you've made it clear that you don't think it needed that much blood. Jenna, what do you think? Is there any kind of greater commentary that we can read into this really like horrifically traumatic scene? Yeah, what I think was really interesting about the scene was the way it was juxtaposed with the jousting tournament that was happening at the same time, which was quite violent as well, but it showed the birth scene was so much more violent in a way and so much more bloody. And it was an interesting contrast between these men who were playing at war and this woman who is literally fighting for her life and and dying. And so I think that was quite a fascinating combination. I think they could have achieved that message with a little less blood on the screen, though. (laughs) Yeah, so about that predilection for blood, for violence, for showing all that kind of stuff, for even like the incest, I think there's some moments in that first episode, uh, scenes between Matt Smith's character and his niece, where I think we've been trained as audiences to read creepiness in And you're just like, oh, well, I think that means something, something, something's going to happen. And maybe it isn't, maybe it is, but that lens is there, like the ground is set. And this is the big conversation about Game of Thrones. That's why it was such a big talking point when that first show was on. And that conversation has kind of transposed itself now to House of the Dragon, because there are questions of whether the depictions of sex and sexual violence in Game of Thrones were necessary, how gendered they were in some ways. And one of the showrunners, Miguel Sapochnik of House of Dragons, has made some comments in The Hollywood Reporter that have been the source of some, uh, how shall we say, like, uproar, controversy, where he talks about showing that sex was a part of everyday life for the Targaryens, at the same time pulling back from sex scenes, but also not shying away from the existence of sexual violence. So that has been read as kind of a conflicting message. Jenna, what do you make of those comments? Yeah, I was kind of baffled by some of his comments, especially because he said something along the lines of, we have to depict accurately what it was like at the time. And it's like, well, it wasn't at the time because it's a fantasy show with dragons. Like you don't have to have violence against women, I guess. But accepting that Westeros is this misogynistic, violent place, I still don't think that we need to ever see graphic 
sexual violence on screen. I just don't think it's necessary. I think you can explore it in a narrative form without depicting it graphically and making it really horrendous for people to watch. And in terms of the general sex scenes, I think Game of Thrones kind of had a reputation for sex position where it's like they'd just be having a conversation and someone would be like doing something sexual off to the side. And that definitely felt like gratuitous, whereas they've kind of talked about in House of the Dragon that they want it to make sense for the story. I'm not sure that they totally achieved that (laughs) in the first episode. It definitely felt like there was some sex in there just for just to live up to the Game of Thrones reputation. So it'll be interesting to see how they continue to explore that now that they've established their tone. Yeah, well, they've put that conversation on the table now. And you're right, there's some scenes in that first episode, you're like, hmm, really, did that have to take place just right there? But Wenlu, what do you think about this whole conversation? And like Jenna says, it's a made up world. It doesn't have to show this. They're not showing like bad teeth in medieval times either, right? Exactly. And dragons didn't exist in medieval times. So I think we can take some creative license in terms of veering away from so-called historical accuracy around sexual violence uh, of us in, in our own past. But it is a fine line. And I think the TV and film industries in general are sort of dealing with this reckoning of what you can and can't, what you should and shouldn't show, and how should you show certain things. So, I mean, I'd be interested to know if they had, for example, intimacy coordinators on the set of House of the Dragon, and I'd love to know if they do have any female cinematographers or directors later on in the season who might bring a different eye to it, because I think you can get shows that are female-led and movies as well, like Hustlers, like P-Valley, where it's coming from a female lens, and the female body and I mean really all nude bodies and and I think of you know good luck to Leo Grand which is in cinemas now which has a female director and I think you can have that on-screen nudity and you can have those sexual scenes and they can be filmed and packaged in a way that doesn't feel gratuitous that feels like it is serving a character purpose it's serving a story purpose it's serving a world purpose I did actually find myself thinking in the first episode of House of the Dragon they have this almost orgy scene with Matt Smith's character that I actually thought, wow, there is little less lingering on the female body than I would have expected in an earlier Game of Thrones season. So I don't know, maybe that's progress. I think it was, <laughs> it was, I feel like there was more male butt as well. Like we got, we got <laughs> straight away. So maybe equal opportunity nudity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is how we mark progress in these shows. Just a note on the intimacy coordinators. I think HBO began to adopt intimacy coordinators for all of its series and films in 2018. So I think we're safe to say that we assume that there were, but you can have intimacy coordinators coordinating scenes of sexual violence, you know, in conjunction with the actor. So it doesn't mean they're not showing any violence at all. Yeah. And they can be on set and possibly not listened to as well. That is also very, very true. What about the casting? Because in particular, Matt Smith as an actor, I have a hard time seeing him on screen as Damon Targaryen without thinking, oh, it's Doctor Who and Prince Philip and he's wearing a, he's in a Legolas wig. That's what he's doing. I'm not saying it detracts, but I'm very aware of that particular casting. Who's standing out to you in terms of the casting, Wenli? I actually do think Matt Smith for now is my MVP of the show. And yes, I am very aware that it is Matt Smith. So there, you do lose a little bit of that, you know, him being able to lend back into a character without me going, oh, it's Matt Smith. But I actually think Millie Alcock, the Australian actor who is playing the young Rhaenyra Targaryen is mm. phenomenal. She is 
just like this perfect blend of almost naivete and innocence and defiance with a knowingness that is way beyond, I think her character is only meant to be 14 or 15. And she's got a very kind of subtle gestures and expressions on her face that I think is just really quite mature, a quite mature performance. I don't think it's a big secret, but you know, those characters are going to get aged up midway through the season. So she doesn't stay on the show for very long. And I think that's a real shame because I think she's actually one of the best things about the series so far. How about you, Jenna? Who's standing out for you? Yeah, I totally agree. I would say Matt Smith and Emily Alcock were the standouts for me. I think the bit that sold me with Matt Smith was the funeral scene when he's almost supporting and encouraging Rhaenyra. And I think that was something that the showrunners mentioned was all Matt. Like that was something that he brought to the character was this emotional depth that I think wasn't on the page. And so that was the moment where I was like, oh, it was really unexpected for that character to do that. And I kind of love Damon now. And (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. When I watched it in a cinema setting, he had that one line, it's an expletive, but maybe it's because it's an Australian audience, but everybody laughed. It was the only moment in the entire episode where there was any kind of humor. I wonder if that same word plays the same with other English-speaking audiences. It's an Australian special, maybe. (laughs) It was great, and he delivered it so well as well. (laughs) Now, in terms of like the casting as a whole, it still seems like the gender balance isn't quite there. It's still quite male-dominated. There is a bit more diversity. We've got Steve Toussaint, who's playing Corliss Valerian. Steve Toussaint is a Black actor. It's originally a white character in the books. It's 2022, whereas Game of Thrones came out in 2011. So we have more than a decade. We've had so many conversations about diversity, about casting in Hollywood, so many conversations. Do you think that House of the Dragon is absorbing any of these lessons and trying to incorporate them? I think they are doing better than Game of Thrones did. And I think it is important that they cast Steve Toussaint in a character who is the richest man in Westeros at this point. He is powerful. He is strong. He's rich, influential. He is, air quote, traditionally a white character from the books. So for them to change that casting dynamics, and actually, unfortunately, Steve Toussaint did say that he got a bit of backlash for that from fans who kind of put his photo up next to a drawing of the character from the books and going basically that he he shouldn't be playing Corliss. So I do like that they've cast him in that role in particular and not as just, you know, what they did in the original series with characters from Essos like the Unsullied and stuff who were of a lower position in society. So they're doing better as always. They could do better than this, but it's definitely come a little way. Just to stay with you for a bit, Wenley, like with your TV industry hat on, you know, we're seeing so many IP franchise multiverse series just populating all of these streaming services all of the star wars shows all of the marvel shows and now we're kind of on the cusp of like this new onslaught of game of thrones ip series are you welcoming this onslaught of all these like tv franchise spin-offs where do you see it in terms of like I'm for it, or is it a lot? I mean, it is definitely a lot. There's a lot being made of the fact that Lord of the Rings is coming out 10 days after the Game of Thrones prequel, and somewhere in the middle, Disney kind of blinked and went, well, we're going to actually move our Star Wars show because it's just too crowded. Yes, there's a lot of franchises, and there is definitely an argument to be made about, oh, the death of originality and all that stuff. But the truth is that there's just a lot being made anyway. So you can get the franchise shows that everyone going to talk about and rally around and you can also get really kind of interesting original 
additional shows as well. So it's not sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So I like that there is enough budget, I guess, <laughs> for so many different kinds of shows to be made. You know, shows like House of Dragon can take a little bit away in terms of sharing that conversation around a bit, but it does get people excited about fandom and I do like fandom. So hopefully it's a jumping off board for people to go and discover other high fantasy shows, other things in the genre, but also just get them thinking about, you know, what do I want to watch now that House of Dragon is over in 10 weeks time? Uh, what other sort of really great, smart scripted shows can I watch instead of going back to the usual reality habit? <laughs> Wenley, you mentioned the fandom. Jenna, I want to come to you for some closing thoughts as a representative of the fandom, we'll say. And you started off by saying that Game of Thrones was like your toxic ex <laughs> and you're not sure if you want to get back together with them again. How are you feeling now that you've seen the first episode of House of the Dragon? Is this a healthy relationship? Where are you at? I don't know that it's a healthy relationship, but I'm back in, baby. Like, <laughs> I'm all in. <laughs> I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would, and I'm kind of mad about it because I kind of wanted to not like it and just be done with it and, you know, move on with my life. But I'm back in, and I will no doubt watch all of House of the Dragon and every iteration of the Game of Thrones universe that they want to throw at me after that. All right, well, we'll stay in for another ride of 10, 11 years. Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I love it, but not for that long. <laughs> There's so many other series as well. It's hard to catch a break and rest between all these TV shows. Thank you so much for talking to Stop Everything about this first episode of House of the Dragon. Thank you. Thank you. Wen Lima is TV and film critic for news.com.au. You can hear her every Tuesday morning talking TV on RN Breakfast with Patricia Carvelis. And Jenna Guillaume is a pop culture reporter and author of two YA novels, What I Like About Me and You Were Made for Me. We'll put links to Wenley and Jenna's articles on House of the Dragon in the show notes for this episode of Stop Everything. House of the Dragon is available to stream on Binge and watch on Foxtel. And that's Stop Everything for this week. Next week, I'll be back along with Sarah Mashman, who's going to jump in the chair for the next few weeks and make her Stop Everything co-hosting debut until Ben's back on board. It's a very exciting development. Really looking forward to talking to Sarah on air. Remember to follow Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app. You can also ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Stop Everything on ABCRN. Stop Everything is produced by Sarah Mashman and me. Our sound engineer is Matthew Crawford. And this week, Stop Everything was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and on the land of the Muwanina people from country around Nipaluna. I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. 